Hi, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I'm a great fan of the Latticework events, and um, I feel privileged to be here with uh, uh, such a, a, a smart and well-informed and sophisticated audience. It's a particular pleasure to be here with, um, uh, with Arnold Vandenberg, who um, some of you will know from, from past MOI interviews, is a very, very remarkable man who I, I profiled in the last book that I wrote, which is um, The Great Minds of Investing. And um, over the years, over, I'd say about 25 years, I've interviewed a lot of famous investors. I mean, everyone from Sir John Templeton to Peter Lynch to Charlie Munger to Michael Price to you know, whoever, whoever you want to name, pretty much. And when I think about Arnold, um, who I got to know um, first when I was working on that book and then in the book that I'm working on at the moment, what stands out to me is, is that he's had the single most interesting background of any investor that I've ever met. And, and when you think about a lot of the famous investors, they were sort of, they were born about three feet from the goal line. You know, they were... Um, they went to Harvard Business School, they went to Wharton, whatever. A, a great number of them were, were sort of handed their success on a, on a plate. And Arnold um, was dealt about the worst, um, worst hand you could imagine in life, starting, starting off from the very beginning. And so Arnold has become, for me, kind of an important role model, both as an investor and in life, because he's such an extraordinary example of how to win a losing hand and how to construct a life that's that's not just financially successful where you, you, know, you have great returns over a very long period um, and you build a successful business, but he's actually built a very successful family, a very successful marriage, very successful relationships. He's been a great philanthropist. And so in some ways, the reason we're here today is to talk to Arnold both about what we can learn from him over 50 years as, a, as an investor, but also what we can learn from him about, about life. And um, so, so we'll split that. And, and We'll, we'll chat for a while and then, uh, then we'll take your questions. So, so Arnold, can you tell us a little bit about this very unusual background, which certainly didn't start with you going to Harvard Business School. Um, where, where were you born, when, and, um, and tell us about the first two, three, four, five, six years of your life, which were very uh, remarkable. Well, I was born in Amsterdam, Holland. Uh, my mom was born in Poland. My dad was born in Germany and they fled the Nazis going to Holland. I was born in Holland, and we lived on a street called the Prinzengracht, which was a famous street in Holland, today even. And it's the same street that Anne Frank uh, lived on. Uh, if any of you heard the story of Anne Frank, uh, we lived right down the street from them. She lived at 267, and we lived at 823. So we weren't too far apart. Our lives were very parallel, except for one important decision that my mom and dad made. And that was they went into hiding the same way as Anne Frank's family did, up in an attic. Uh, the problem was that I was only two and a half years old, and so it was hard to keep myself and my older brother, who was five, quiet if, they started, if the Germans came in and were looking for Jews in the house. So they made an important decision, and that's one of the principles that I really have studied. <clears throat> uh, my dad explains it this way. He says, when you're in a real tough situation, rather than do nothing, you have to take a gamble as wild and as ridiculous as it may be. So what they decided to do, there was a 19-year-old girl from the Dutch underground who volunteered to smuggle me through the German lines to get me into an orphanage. It was a high-risk operation because there were a lot of checkpoints where the Germans checked your passport, and they had a fake passport because we didn't have uh, papers. And so it was a good chance that they would discover that it was a fake. So that's one thing. So what they did is we had to go on a train, and they put a Dutch underground man in front of us, so when the guard came up to check your passport, he kept them busy talking, asking them questions, with the hope that the whistle will blow, he would have to get off the train and not check our passport. That plan worked well. Uh, he kept them busy. Uh, I was sitting there, I was two and a half years old with this young girl, and finally got us through the passport check and arrived at the orphanage uh, 
a while later. My mom and dad eventually got caught. And the reason they got caught is that they were going to phone when I arrived at this orphanage, but nobody ever called. And they didn't have a phone in the house. So my mom kept saying, we got to call to see if Arnold and Zig uh, got to their destination. My dad says, you can't take the chance because we're going to get caught. And she kept, kept it up for a while. But anyway, Finally, she said to him, Hugo, if you don't go with me, I'm going by myself. So my dad said, what could I say? You know, I had to go. I had a very bad feeling. Uh, they did get caught. They were taken in. And they were shipped to Auschwitz. So both of my parents ended up in Auschwitz. Uh, both of them survived through many different interesting concepts. And uh, after the war, they picked me up. I was at the orphanage. There was a lot of problems there. I had a lot of physical deprivation. There was many times it wasn't food. Many, some, a lot of times it wasn't even water. So I almost died from malnutrition, but if my folks wouldn't have come six months later, I probably wouldn't have even been alive. Most of the kids there didn't live very long. But anyway, we... Uh, we gathered, the family gathered up in 49. We came to the United States. Uh, we moved into a very low-income neighborhood. My folks were starting can, can all I over. Can I interrupt you for one moment, Arnold, and just rewind for one bit before we get to the next stage of your life? Because I remember you once saying to me that you were trying to figure out why that girl saved your life, why she would go to that risk. And I was always fascinated and kind of moved by your your struggle to kind of figure out why would someone who didn't know you risk her life to save yours and what impact that had on how you decided to lead your life. That was a, thank you, that was a very profound thing. I struggled with that for many years. Why would this girl who never even met me risk her life to save me? But more importantly, how could her dad send her on almost a suicide mission? Because if she had been caught, she'd have been shipped to Auschwitz too. So I struggled with that for many years, and I thought, geez, what would make people do that? Well, after I graduated from high school, I went through a very severe depression that lasted years. I went to a psychiatrist, and I first thing I asked him was, can you explain that to me? He says, oh, that's very simple. I said, it is? I've been struggling with it all my life. And he said, well, it's very simple. If your principles are more important than your life, you sacrifice your life. If your life is more important than your principles, you sacrifice your principles. And that is really a profound thought, and that influenced me the rest of my life because I said, look how many times in business and in life you get into a situation where you have to make a serious decision. Well, if you have the right philosophy, you'll make the right decision. So I determined, after I learned that, that I was going to develop the principles that would guide my life so that if, God forbid, I ever got into a position where I had to make that decision, that I would choose to live up to the principles. And so that was a very influential thing in my life. So, so then when you got to Los Angeles, you were living in kind of a poor neighborhood, you were pretty malnourished, weak, um, kind of damaged from the experience that you'd been through. And I wondered if you could give us a sense of how you got your life together, how you got to a point where you got over the, the anger, the hatred, the resentment, and, and your sense of your own kind of weakness and victimization so that you could actually begin to construct a kind of successful career as an investor. Well. What happened is <clears throat> I lived in a neighborhood where the culture was fighting. I mean, it was a tough neighborhood, and <clears throat> the culture was if you're a good fighter and you're tough, everything is great, and if you're not, you're in trouble. Well, I was in trouble. Everybody wanted to fight me. How could you lose, you know? So anyway, I got into a lot of different fights, but the, the main thing that, another great thing that happened is I avoided fights like the plague. I mean, anytime somebody wanted to fight, I didn't want to fight. Well, one time we're standing taking pictures, and somebody pushed me, and I bumped into this kid, and he was one of the tough kids in school, and so he pushed me, and he said, okay, today in the bicycle yard, we're going to have it out. That was the place where you settled your scores, sort of the Supreme Court-like. 
Well, I was just terrified. I didn't want to do it. So the first day I chickened out. I just didn't show up. I hope he'd go away. But he did. Saw me the next day. I thought, I'm just going to have to go there. I just can't stand living with the fact of chickening out, even though I know I'm going to get slaughtered. And I didn't invite my friends because I knew it would be kind of embarrassing. So anyway, we met at the bicycle yard. He hit me, knocked me down on the ground, put his knees on my chest, and just beat me until he got tired of hitting me. And I was just terrified. And then I was beat up, and they all were laughing, and then they all left. And I went home, and I was, my face was all bloody, and I was kicked all over the place, and I thought, God, I, <clears throat> I hate to look in the mirror to see what I look like. So I snuck in the back so my mom wouldn't see me, and I washed my face, and I combed my hair, and I was in the mirror, and I look up, well, so far, so good. I looked up a little, look okay now. Then I looked up, and I thought, my God, this wasn't all that bad. I mean, this was the thing I feared the most, and here I'd had the worst beating and it wasn't all that bad. I felt my ribs, they had a little sore, but they were okay. And I thought, wow, what if I would have hit back? He wouldn't have hurt me as much, and I might have done some damage to him. So I got very excited. I was really excited. Because what I learned in retrospect, I overcame my fear. That's the thing that keeps all of us behind, is fear. So here I had faced the fear, <clears throat> and I conquered it. So now I got very excited, and I, got, I was, went into the coach. Uh, I was working on my strength at that time, and he helped me to learn how to fight, and my buddies taught me how to fight, and I thought, boy, the next time I get into a fight, I'm going to really hit hard, and we'll see what happens next. Well, it didn't take too long to get into the next fight. So I got into a fight, and the guy was behind the gym, and I was standing there all ready to go. I was just really ready to go. I had one more lesson to learn. You got to hit first. So this guy hit me first. I went down. He hit me three times before I even got a punch in. And thought, here I am, almost out of breath. I'm ready to go down. I grab onto him real tight. And I thought if I could just hang on to him to get my breath back, at least want to get one punch in. I can't go out of this fight without a punch. I got to go. So anyway, as I grabbed him, I grabbed him so tight that he started to squeeze a little bit. And I thought, my God, if I could do that again and push him down, he's going to end up with his face down and I'm going to end up on top of him. That's the ideal situation. So I took a deep breath. I pushed him down. We fell on top of him, and I just knew that I had to take this guy out because if he got up, he'd kill me, you know. <clears throat> anyway, he was face down. He was on the asphalt. Every time I hit him, his, it, squirt, it scraped his face. By the time he got up, his face was all bloody, and he gave up. So the next day at school, they said, man, what happened to you? Well, I got in a fight with Vandenberg. <clears throat> so I gained my confidence and my, got a little <laughs> reputation. And during that time, I wanted to overcome my physical handicap, so <clears throat> I walked into gym one time, gymnastic club, and all these guys were big bills, and they were doing all these spectacular things, and I thought, God, if I could do this, this would be great. So I walked up to the coach, and I said, uh, I'd like to become a gymnast. And he kind of looked at me, and he said, <clears throat> Well, why don't you climb this rope? This is a rope. Uh, it was an event in gymnastics. Uh, Amazingly, this used to be an Olympic event, rope climbing. Yeah, it was, a, it was an event in gymnastics. They discontinued it 30 years ago. But anyway, I started climbing it. I climbed it for two years. I used to climb till my hand bled. Somebody would walk off the gym and say, what do you do? He said, well, we have races up the rope. You say, I want to have a race. Okay, I thought I'd beat him. They beat me. So I went home one night, and I was going to quit. I thought, God, if I can't even beat a guy that's never climbed the rope, how am I ever going to compete? Well, long story short, I came home, and, and, and a thought flashed through my mind, and it says, why would you give up? You're getting stronger. And I thought, that's right. I'm going to keep going. Anyway, long story short, I kept at it. Two years later, 
I won the league. I set the school record. I won the league three years in a row, set the school record. And as a high school climber, I climbed in the national AAU, which was the national gymnastic champion college, all college senior. There was only three high school kids that qualified. I was one of them. And I placed ninth in the nation. I ended up climbing a 20-foot rope. It's about from here to there in 3.5 seconds. So I overcame my physical handicap. So when you think about how you actually went from, went from that situation of having, having been kind of this, this victim, beaten up, um, malnourished, I remember you said that when you left the orphanage, you basically couldn't walk. You were mostly sort of walking on your, crawling on your knees. How did you get from that to actually being a money manager? What was the process for you to, to say, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out what actually works as an investor? Because you didn't, you didn't go to you know, Yale Business School. There was nobody actually teaching you what mattered as an investor. What did you, what did you do to teach yourself about how to invest? And what did you discover really mattered most in terms of... Um, becoming a kind of a, a winning investor? Well, <clears throat> I did very well, as I mentioned, in gymnastics, but I did terrible academically. Matter of fact, one of the things that I have learned in life, there, there's a lot of different things, but one that's the most important one, which I partially learned from my mom and dad, and I learned <coughs> when I went to the psychiatrist, and that is, <clears throat> And I had an experience in gymnastics that changed my life, but I, I learned how to use the subconscious mind. But in gymnastics, I learned it by accident. I didn't even know what a subconscious mind was. But I had done all the right things, accidentally just stumbling into it. And that's how I developed this technique to become a champion. So when I was going to the psychiatrist, I told him that I wanted to become a money manager. And he said, when I told him what I did during uh, the rope climbing technique, where I used to get in front of the mirror and visualize my move, and where I would repeat to myself that I was going to be a great champion, and I was just obsessed with it, it just became a subconscious program. Even in a meet, I would get the feeling that I was going to win. It just came to me. So the psychiatrist said, what you did in gymnastics is what we teach in sports psychology. I said, no kidding, what is it? He says, well, the repetition, the visualization, the setting of the goals, the sticking to it, no matter what. He said, if you do the same thing in your business, the same thing's going to happen. And as soon as he said that, I got chills on my right arm. Whenever I hear a truth, my right arm gets chills. And I knew it was right. So I went home that day. I cleared out. I lived in a studio apartment. I cleared out my studio apartment, put the desk in the middle of the room, and I thought, that's it. I'm going to start my company. Uh, the only problem is I didn't have an education, and I didn't have any money, and I didn't have any clients. So it's kind of a tough way to get the business going. Certainly not one you could make a five-year cash flow projection with. But I had, after high school, uh, I was sitting down. My mom gave me a great thought one day. And I was sitting down with her, and I was a little depressed because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was working in a gas station for $1.15 an hour, and wasn't much of a future there. So my mom says, Arnold, you look a little depressed. What's the matter? And I said, well, Mom, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do for a living, you know? And the gas station doesn't give you much opportunity. She says, there's only two kinds of people. There is a businessman and a yekka. I said, what's a yekka? She says, a yekka is a guy like your dad. Ask him any question, music, mathematics, philosophy, history, anything, he can give you an answer. Can he make money? Nothing. <laughs> so she says, ask your mother. Does she know about music, mathematics? No. Does she care? No. Can she make money? Manya can make money. So she said, so it's very easy. You either become a yekka or you become a businessman. And I said, and she says, however, yekkas can be happy. They can get another degree and another degree. They can be happy, but they can't make money. 
So if you want to make money, very easy, you become a businessman. So I worked in different jobs. I got a job at a print shop, and I became a supervisor. One day I saw an ad. Be in your own business. So I thought, that's it. I'm going to go check that ad out. So I went out there, and it was an insurance program where you go out and sell insurance. Long story short, I had no knowledge of finance. The guy showed me a, 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 a policy where you 2% a year after 40 years, you got all this money. And since I didn't know anything about it, it looked pretty good. It looked like a lot of money, you know. So I started selling insurance, and after six months, I converted full-time. And I got into the insurance business, and I did very well at first. And then, wouldn't you know it, at the top of the market, 1968, the insurance companies decided to go into mutual funds. So I started reading about the mutual funds, and I went to a meeting, and I was just overwhelmed. Here I'm looking at returns at 2%, and now I'm looking at returns of 10 12 and 15% at the top of the market. And I thought, this is it. I found my life calling. This is what I'm going to do. So I got my mutual fund license right at the top of the market, six months before it peaked up. And then it went into a sickening slide for six years. So you, you set up your business in 74, right? About three right. months before, well, yeah, so just as the market was crashing, just as that six months was right. starting. That, I mean, a lot, a, a lot of us here, I think, have not been through many tumultuous <clears throat> times. Are there things that you learned very early on in your investing career that have enabled you to survive and thrive for 45 years, 40, 40, yeah, 45 years in the business? Because I mean, longevity is unbelievably important, and, and you, you've managed that. So what, what did you figure out then that, that has enabled you to survive for that long in the business? Well, the first thing is uh, I went through six years of down market. So I was selling mutual funds all the way down in the market. The market peaked out in 69. It went down for a year and a half. Then it burped up for a year and a half. And then it went straight down for two more years. So here's a six-year cycle, and now I'm getting near the, end of the, near the bottom of the market. But during that time, I was trying to figure out, why didn't these mutual funds do well? I went to the meetings. These guys were geniuses, and I was just in awe with them, and I was enthusiastically selling all their funds to my best friends that I went to high school with, and they were all losing money, and I was just agonizing for years. And so I decided that I was going to study the market myself. And I ran across articles about Benjamin Graham, and I read everything I could get my hands on during that six-year period. So that was my education. During the down market, I was studying the market, studying. And then one of the things that gave me the confidence is that because of my folks experience in the concentration camp and because what the psychiatrist told me I experienced in gymnastics, I started studying the subconscious mind and, and the psychiatrist told me all the wonderful things the subconscious mind could do and I said if you could do all these things I'm going to spend the rest of my life studying and I have. I have 45 years of notes on the subconscious mind, how it works and that has been my guiding principle and I can say to each and every one of you Every one of you can gain in your life, whether it's investing in marriage and family and friends and life, by studying the subconscious mind. I'm going to give you a quote that Young said. He said, if you don't understand your subconscious mind, your life will end up a certain way, and you'll think it's fate. But it's not fate. It's what you program in your subconscious mind. Because the subconscious mind does not think. It acts. It's just like typing into a computer. Now, we have 15 to 70,000 thoughts a day. Can you imagine if we had a sheet here, and every time you had a negative thought, you get a black dot, you have a positive thought, you have an orange dot, what would that sheet look like at the end of the day? 65 to 70% of our thoughts are negative. And so what you're doing is creating pathways, neural pathways in your mind either on a negative or positive thing. And so through my studies, I've learned, if I can mention, yeah. three truths that are very important. 
Number one, you have to be totally honest to be able to get the most out of your subconscious mind because if you lie and deceive and you, you have conflicts in your mind, so here you got your computer programming you to do one thing and then the other part of the computer program should do the other thing and your life gets very messed up and confused. But if you have a truth, if you always stick to the same principle and you work that principle repetitiously in your mind, your subconscious mind will program you into the type of person you want to be. And the most important key, and this is the most important, is repetition. Always repeat the things that you want to become, that you believe in. And that's what I did during my whole career. I programmed that I was going to become successful, that I was going to have a great family. I had all the things mapped out there. all seemed impossible. But they all came true because of that realization. And here's another principle that you'll learn from the subconscious mind. You cannot do good and not get paid. There is no way that the universe works that way. Whatever you do right, you will be paid. I have done consulting, I've helped people in financial situations that couldn't afford to pay me, and I can't believe how I got paid. I recently got an inheritance from a client whose mother I helped, and it was a huge sum of money, a brand new Cadillac, uh, all kinds of other things, and it was like 20 years later. So people said, well, you did all this work, but you didn't get paid. I said, well, I did get paid. So you get paid. Now, the other thing is if you do wrong, your subconscious mind, you'll start to feel guilty, and your subconscious mind will do the wrong. So the important thing is have the goal, have the vision, and the second thing is belief. We are finding out through studying the subconscious mind that the belief is so powerful the belief can influence your genes and your DNA. That's how powerful it is. It is the single most important thing in life. Now, what happens if you don't have a lot of faith? How do you develop the faith? Repetition. Whatever you want to do, even if you don't believe it at the time, if you repeat it often enough, the subconscious will believe it, and then it'll start acting on it. So you develop faith in yourself. You develop faith in other people. You develop faith in life. You believe that things are going to work out well, no matter what you do. And so I have a saying that I always tell people. When you have to make a decision that's not necessarily good for you, but it's the right thing to do, you never go wrong doing the right thing. If you do the right thing, Things will work out better, even if you don't think it at the time. So that's what guided me, and that's what still motivates me today. So, so in very practical terms, if you're you know, a, a young, hungry money manager or analyst, um, or middle-aged, and you're trying to, trying to get to the next level, and you want to apply in kind of very practical, pragmatic terms what you've learned about how to gain control over your thoughts and your mind, which is something I discussed a great deal with John Templeton as well, and at the time as a young man, totally dismissed, and in retrospect realized I was totally wrong to dismiss it. In, in practical terms, if there were one or two things that you could do like to, to harness the power either of visualization or the power of repetition, what's the single most powerful, kind of simple technique that any of us could use that would help us? Well, I would like to refer, uh, I'm going to tell you that, but there's a good book called Think and Grow Rich. Many of you probably heard about it. Many of you have probably read about it. Uh-uh. You don't read it once. You read it 30 times because there are truths in there laid out by Andrew Carnegie. This is the way he built his fortune. And I read that. That was one of my first organized books, and I've read that and studied it, and of course, I have a whole library on it now. But here's the simple principle. The first thing, and this is what I did, I wrote out a goal about how much I wanted to make in the future. And then I visualized that goal, and I repeated it often and over and over. And one time I remember I was married, I had a wife and two kids, uh, the business was not doing well, it was hard for me to get clients, and 
it, you know, and just on and on. It went on for about seven or eight years. I struggled with this. So my wife was sitting there doing the books one night, and she got tears in her eyes. I said, what's the matter? She says, Arnold, I see you working day and night, and every month we're getting more into business, uh, more into debt, and I'd like to get a job so that I can help you until the business turns. I said, no, no, I just got through with a shrink, and I told me, told me how important parents are, and we can't have the parents working and not have the kids. I'll be sending that money to paying for a, for a shrink for my kids. You stay with the kids. And I said, give me one of your checks. She was writing out the bills. So I wrote out a check. I think I showed it to you. To Eileen Vandenberg, $250,000 for something you might like. Now, this was 40 years ago. So that's like a million and a half. And I said, now, don't cash it this week. But one of these days, you're going to be able to cash it. So we're driving down the street about five years ago. And I, she said, can you transfer some money into my account? I'm running low. And I said, you mean to tell me you spent all that money I gave you? And she goes, oh, I saved the check. So I actually have the check now. But I really believed that no matter what happened, that it was going to work. And I, the, more, the worse it got, the more I believed it. And you develop a strength within you that you just know it's going to happen, even though you don't know how. But you keep going. And the more you keep going, the more you develop that strength. And after a while, one day, after struggling for about seven or eight years, I finally got enough clients to where I could pay the bills and everything else. And there was one stock that I really liked, Maslin Carpet. I still remember. It went up 22 points one day. Well, I was finally getting to the point where not only could I make money for my clients, but I had a few bucks I could invest myself. So I had started my own portfolio, and I bought some there, and broker called me up, and he said, Arnie, Maslin Carpet's up $22, and it's great. And I was just thrilled, you know, to hear the stock go up that much. And then I remembered I had some shares myself, and I was even more excited. And then I looked, and I thought, oh, I made a mistake in my portfolio. I bought twice as much as I should have. So now, all of a sudden, that one day I made $16,000, and this is 40, 30, years, five years ago. That was a lot of money then. And for me, it was like a fortune. So I called my wife up and I said, I want you to come down for lunch. I got to tell you something we're going to celebrate. And so that was sort of, you could see the turning point. Now I was starting to make some money, and I was making money on my portfolio. And things started moving along. You, you went through some very difficult periods over the years with, uh, I, I guess, first with 74, with that six-year period. Then 1987, I think, when everyone was very bullish for a while before the market crashed, you had, I think, 50% in cash. And then again in 99 and 2000, you were very out of step where everyone was buying tech and you were underperforming massively. Can you talk a bit about how... Monish Pabrai once gave me this great phrase where he said, you know, the thing that really separates the great investors is they have this ability to take pain. Can you talk about how you were able to cope with the pressure from your clients saying, you're a schmuck, just buy tech, or you're a schmuck, just take your money out of cash and pour it into the market? How did you deal with that, that sheer intensity of, of criticism and the sense of loneliness that you had when you were out of step? You know, I think one of the great things, you, you've often said I was dealt a, a, not a good hand of cards, okay? The older I get and the more I think about it, I think in some ways I was dealt a very good hand. Because what I learned as a kid, what I learned with what my parents suffered in the concentration camp, they lost 39 members of our family. My mom and dad were the only survivors out of the big family. What I learned is you learn to deal with pain and you realize that as you work through the pain, you gain insights that you could have never had if you didn't have to go through that. So I would never want to relive it, but I'm grateful because I believe I learned some things that you could not learn in a college, for example, or in a book, because you have to experience it. So what I learned is I made a commitment that I was going to learn the business. I had a whole bookshelf of books 
that I had a goal to read. I read every day. I read for three hours a night and studied and worked on it. And so you develop the conviction within yourself, and there's something inside of you that tells you that. For example, I was studying the earthquake in, in California 30 years ago, and I was trying to figure out how I was going to protect my clients from the earthquake uh, because many had real estate, and you can imagine what that would happen. So I got it. I studied and studied it, and finally I thought, I'm not going to learn the geology how to predict the quake. I'm going to hire an expert. So I hired a guy from Caltech, and I had him draw uh, on a freeway map the fault line. So I could sit down with the client and say, look, William, your home is three miles from the fault line. You've got to be at least 20 miles, or you're going to have a problem. Well, the more I studied it, the more I realized this is going to be so catastrophic Maybe I should have an office outside, because at that time we didn't have cell phones, so that if there was an earthquake, I'd be able to trade stocks during the earthquake, you know, maybe shorts and stocks and so forth. So I thought about getting an office outside, and then I thought, the more I studied, I got a feeling, no, no, maybe I should have the main office outside and have a little office in LA, which is the way I got it now. Anyway, I wanted to... I thought I was getting carried away with this feeling about it that I got. So my wife is very intuitive. She's got radar. So I thought, I'm going to take her to meet with the seismologist and see what she thinks, because I didn't want her to think I was going nuts that we moved the family and the business out of the city. So she was very quiet during the whole thing like she usually is. And then on the way back, I said, you were kind of quiet. What's, what's, your, what's your thinking? She says, Arnold. I think we ought to take the whole family and move out of state. And I looked at her and I said, that's exactly what I'm thinking of doing. But I didn't want to think I was going nuts. She said, no, you're doing the right thing. We should move. So I called up the kids. So Scott, my son's back there. He was working in a real estate operation right on the beach, looking out at the beautiful girls on the beach there. And he said to me, you want to move out of state? Have you been to my office? Look out the window. You know, single guy and all these beautiful girls. And I said, no, I haven't. He said, and he started giggling. He said, and where did you want to meet? Albuquerque and New Mexico and so forth. So nobody wanted to move. So we thought, well, if the kids aren't going to move, we're not going to move. So we stayed. And one day, Scott calls me up. He says, hey, Dad, you still thinking about moving? I said, I'd move tomorrow. So anyway, he got the whole family together. We moved to uh, Austin, Texas. He did the research. We looked for six of the best cities. And Austin was our choice. Four months later, devastating earthquake right in the neighborhood. And literally, I went back there, and the homes were off the blocks. And 22 people died in an apartment building a, a block away that the, the building just caved in. And so I had this feeling by studying it, but it was the subconscious directing me. And so once you get that conviction, you act on it, even though it doesn't seem to be the right thing. I, I remember once talking to Howard Marks about this and saying, um, you know, you're one of the most rational men I've ever met. You know, where does intuition come into this? And he said increasingly he thinks that actually most of his decisions are intuitive, not rational. Uh, so it's an extraordinary contradiction and, or paradox. And, and I think it was him who said to me, he thinks that most of Buffett's decisions actually are ultimately intuitive as well, but obviously based on enormous, enormous research and knowledge. Let me tell you the difference between intuition and fear, because they, they seem to be the same. When you have a person, I had a client, a woman who grew up the hard way and she learned to live by her wits, a very smart woman, married a very successful attorney. And whenever the market would go down, she'd call me up and she would be panicking. She says, my gut is telling me that this is going to be bad. And I said, she said, because I, all my life I've relied upon my gut, my intuition. So her intuition worked well with people in where she had experience. But in the market, she had no experience. I said, you're not experiencing intuition. You're experiencing fear. 
and they feel the same way. So fear comes about when you don't know and you don't have any experience, and then you get this feeling, that's fear. Yeah. But when you really understand the situation and you have all of this information, and then it gives you that sort of intuition, that is a confirmation because you've put all that data in your subconscious mind and your subconscious mind is directing it. But when your subconscious mind is working from fear, then you make the wrong decision. So you have to separate between your subconscious knowledge and experience that's guiding you or fear. I, I wanted to ask you one last question before we turn this over to, to the audience. You, once again at the moment, are very out of step with the market in many ways. Everyone's decided that inflation is dead and that you don't want to invest in commodities. And, and Arnold has been taking a very contrarian view. And I wondered if, if you could just explain what, what you're doing and what you regard as this kind of very historic opportunity based on your um, half century of knowledge of the markets. Well, what, what you have to realize is when you get a consensus of contrary opinion, I mean across the board, the media, the analyst, even the people in the business, then you have a true contrary opinion. And that means that industry or those stocks get beaten to a level that you cannot imagine. You could only go to 1974, 209, or 87 to compare it. So when I am looking at the world today, there was, a, it, when I started, uh, I started three months before the bottom. There was an article, The Death of Equities. How many of you have ever heard of that article? Okay, most of you. Well, it showed that there was no way that stocks could go up. But I had such a strong feeling based on my studies with Benjamin Graham when stocks were selling at five times earnings and 7% dividend yields and 75% to 50% a book, even during the Depression, and he managed money during the Depression. He, that's what impressed me. He managed money during the Depression. He said, that is the buy zone. So no matter how bad it looked, even this article came out and clients told me I'd go to a social gathering and say, what do you do? I'm an investment counselor. They acted like they had bad breath. I mean, people had lost money for seven years. They don't want to be talking stocks. But I had the feeling, so I told my wife, I said, you know, the world is either going to end up, in which case it doesn't matter, or we're going to make a lot of money. Because if it doesn't end, and you know what you hear about the world, the world, the, the people who tell you the world's going to end, they're the ones that die off and the world keeps going. So the point is that we are at a point right now where a new business we cover came out, and you should all take notice. It's the ultimate contrary opinion. And the title of the article was, Is Inflation Dead? Well, I'm suggesting, based on my studies, and I've been wrong for the last few years on that, uh, that there's a good possibility we're going to have inflation. But even if we don't, the stocks, the commodities across the board, gold, oil, copper, even agricultural products, are sold down to the point because everybody believes the big problem in the world is going to be we're going to have a recession. We're not going to have a recession. I believe, and that's only my personal belief, please don't go by it, it's just what I believe, is we're going to have inflation. Now let me just give you some numbers. In 1972, the inflation rate was at 2.7%. In 1973, in one year, it went from 2.7 to 6. And then from then, it went from 6 to almost 11. So in two years, it went from 2.7 to 11. Now, you know what happened to gold? It went from 44 to 183 in those two years. And then from then, it went on to 600 in 1980. Oil went from $1.82 to 11. And so the, while the market was going down, average 75%, now look what happens to a multiple. If you got an 18 or 19 multiple at 2.5 to 3% inflation, 
By the time you get to 4%, that multiple is down to 12. And by the time you get to 10 or 11%, you got an 8 to 10 multiple, which is what happened in 74. Now, I'm in no ways predicting that we're going to have that kind of inflation, we're going to have that kind of a thing. All I'm suggesting is watch the inflation rate once it gets past 3.5 to 4. And once it does, make sure you adjust your multiples down. So when you look at your four or five year projection on where this stock's going to go, and you're using a 17, 18 multiple, and it's going to be 8, you're going to be somewhat off in your calculation. So what I am trying to point out to you, I am not, we don't make predictions. We just look at probability. Now, let me give you a statistic. If you take the Goldman Sachs index, which is 35% energy and all commodities, and you divide it by the S&P today, it, the commodities are the cheapest in 50 years. Now, that gets my attention. Now, what is it going to take to make these commodities go up? Well, not very much, because if you have 3 or 4% inflation, That'll get it going, and then money will come out of the market, and it'll go into the commodities. Now, I think one of the great opportunities today is in the energy market, which has just been a disaster. But stocks, believe it or not, in the energy section are selling as cheap as when I started Century Management in 74. I had no idea that the market would go up, but I knew they were cheap. I have no idea what's going to happen to the price of oil, but if I divide it by the price of gold, and there's a 150-year relationship between oil and gold, and oil usually trades at 15 times, uh, if you take the price of gold and divide it by 15, that's usually average price, which would put it at 80 to $90. Well, some of these oil stocks, if the price of oil just went to 65 to 70, there's some that'll go up 200%. So the possibility in the oil field area, and I would recommend that all of you look at it, not necessarily invest unless it tells you, you look at that because there are good companies selling at five to 6% dividends that are well protected. Some of them are selling at three times cash flow. Now, you don't need a lot of increase in the price to make that justification. So I would say that 65 to $70 is a very conservative number, and we've studied everything we can get our hands on. In the next two or three years, and based on value line, if you just look at value line, go to the energy section and look at what their projection is. They project about 65 to $70. We think it's going to be much higher, but let's just take 65 their projections are that these stocks can go up 100 to 150, 200%. That's not my opinion. That's value line. If you want to go to Morningstar, you'll see the same thing. If you want to go to Wall Street analysts, you look at Bloomberg, you've got 40 analysts following the stock, the same thing. So the point I'm making is we are value investors. We are contrarian investors. And it is lonely. And it is painful. And it is tough to have somebody call you an idiot, and, but that's all part of the price. Now, let me give you one thing. Okay, we, then we have to okay. ask a few okay. questions because okay. we need to leave a few minutes. So when I was in high school, I had such a low image of myself that one of my best friends wrote in my annual, Arnold, you're a cool guy. I hope we'll always be buddies. You're kind of dumb, but you're still cool. So that's the way I saw myself. That's the way other people saw So. Program the mind, read everything you can, believe that you're going to be successful irrespective of what happens, and you'll get there. Thank you. Uh, any questions? Thank you very much. Uh, yes, this gentleman here. Arnold, in the 70s, commodities were a major input into inflation, right? I mean, oil was a major expense for Americans. Um, today, commodities play a smaller role, like in the average American budget, say. Um, but wages have not grown as quickly as economic theory suggests they should, say, over the last 10 years. 
So would your view that inflation is going to be higher in the years ahead be related to American wages growing, real wages growing faster, or is it unrelated? You know, it's hard to tell exactly how it happens, but I can tell you this. The dollar has been pushed up very high because why? Because all over the world, there's negative yields. So if you're a European and you're getting negative yield, you're going to buy a treasury bill, even if it only pays you 1% or 2%, right? So the money is flowing into this country and it's pushing up the dollar. And at some point, that will reverse just by the market forces. And when the dollar starts going up, starts going down, then the prices of commodities start going up. And so the opportunities, and I have not done a lot of investing in emerging markets and so forth, and I'm not sure I even will, but I see a lot of opportunities in emerging markets because as the dollar comes down, those countries are all commodity-based. So when you have a country that's producing copper or gold, like South Africa and all these countries, agriculture, those countries are going to become very prosperous, not because of anything they're doing, but because the dollar's going down, their commodity values are going up, their stock markets are going to go up, but the commodities itself will go up because the dollar goes down. Now, you got to remember one thing. When you see a lead cover on a magazine like Business Week or other things, it might take a couple of years before it actually starts to happen. But it's an early warning sign. So what I'm saying to you, whether you agree with me or not, and I'm sure most of you will disagree with me, and that's okay, uh, if you disagree, just watch for it. And watch your PE multiples, because the minute the inflation starts coming up, and let me tell you, you know what is the best indicator of future inflation? With all due respects to all the economists and the Federal Reserve and everybody, the price of gold. That's your first signal. In 71, the price of gold went up a year before the inflation hit. You go back to any inflationary period, and you're going to see that the price of gold sniffs it out. So you have an early warning signal to start thinking. And here's the beauty. No matter what happens, remember, if you program yourself to win, you're going to choose those things that will be compatible with your subconscious mind. Any other questions? This gentleman back here. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to hear him back there. Okay. He's got a microphone. We'll be good. Um, I'm curious about um, how you think about the changes that happened over your investing career. What you are mentioning currently is that not much has changed regarding the commodity markets and you forecast that it will recover. Uh, in all your investments, did you notice some change over time? And if yes, how did you navigate those changes during your investing lifetime? Thank you. Yeah, what, what's, what's changed? I mean, in some ways, in some ways you, you have a classic kind of timeless way of investing, but what's changed and what's different now that makes it in some ways more challenging? Do you mean the investment environment? Yeah, I mean, would, yeah, I mean, it's different in many ways, right? The, the indexes have become unbelievably difficult. Oh. We don't know whether some paradigm has shifted in terms oh. of inflation. How do you, I mean, how do you know you're not, you're not wrong and that the things that you've been using are still relevant? Well, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the thing that we live with as investment counselors. A lot of times we're wrong. I mean, the, 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 the most important thing is over the long run, it all works out. But let me just give you one thing that you can back up statistically. The biggest thing change is passive investment, right? There's no point in picking stocks. You just buy the index, you buy a mutual fund, you buy an ETF, and so on and so forth. And that, those are valid principles, and I support them, and I think it's good. But if you look at value investment, if you look at it since 1938, if you look at a rolling 10 years, there's been 84 of them, and all but 11, value has outperformed everything 
over a 10-year period. There's only been 11 10-year periods where value did not outperform. So therefore, I believe, and value has been underperforming, uh, it's the second 10-year period that's the worst since 1938. So value investors have been hurt very badly, even good ones, and it's because their style is not in line. And one of the things I've learned about investing is when something else is really hot, like the FANG stocks are really hot, who in the world wants to buy a, a, a cheap value stock, right? When you can have all these things. As long as these things are going up, you're going to have low returns on value and people will match the index and all that. But there will come a point where they sort of peak out and things move the other way and then this tidal wave of money that is in the passive investments are going to come into the value investors and then value investors over the next 10 years will have a chance to, to shine. And so you stick with something that has proven over a long period of time. And let me just say one thing. I believe that value investing is a, is a way of life. I apply it to everything I do. It's not just stock markets. Like, I don't drink wine. Why don't I drink wine? It's the worst investment you could make. I mean, what could be worth to pay 30, 40, and 50 dollars for a bottle of wine that's worth two or sour grapes, right? Two or three dollars. So it's not because I can't afford it, it's just because it's not part of the principle, okay? I don't even understand why people live in New York at these prices as a value investor. <laughs> but that's another story. So the point about it is the more consistent you are in what you believe, the more of a neural pathway you make in your subconscious mind, and the more you become that person that you envision. This is critical. Do, do we have time for one final question? If anyone has? Yes, this lady here. I'm sorry for the time. No, no, it's great. Um, I was wondering, you seem to have a very good way of looking at things from a meta um, way of looking at the economy. Do you have any books you recommend, or what, what do you read on a regular basis? You know, let me tell you something. The hardest thing in the world is to come up with a book list, because I have a library that spans three or four walls. I even have people I pay to read books for me. Uh, the reason I do it is I get a lot of recommendation. I hear a lot of, I don't have time to read them all, so I hire people to read them. I pay them $15 an hour to read the book and make me a, a kind of a cliff note version of the book. And then I go home at night before I go to sleep and I read these book reports because I can pick out things out of the book. I may not have to read the book, but if there's a good chapter, I'll maybe go back and read the chapter. But I will say this. To start off with, I would start thinking, think and grow rich. That's the second one. I gave all of you my quote book, and the reason I gave you the quote book, you would think, well, why don't I leave you a book on the market? Well, I believe the greatest gift I can give any human being is a good thought, because you have 15 to 17,000 of them every day, and a lot of them are no good. So you have some book here, you can get some good thoughts, and you can get it to enhance your life. But Think and Grow, which is one, uh, if you want interested in or learning the subconscious mind, you should study hypnosis, and the best book to learn hypnosis is uh, Self-Hypnosis by Leslie LeCron. He was a great teacher. I use hypnosis in many different areas. I've used it to coach my son in athletics and helped a lot of people with different problems. If any of you have a back problem, if ever you had any back problem, let me see your hands. Your back problems can all be solved through the mind. The subconscious mind uses the back whenever you get stressed and overwhelmed. It works as a circuit breaker. And so if you program your subconscious mind, you can get rid of your back problems. Matter of fact, there's a doctor, Dr. Sarno, who was a, a back surgeon. He developed a technique. He never does any surgeries anymore. He only does 2% of his practices surgery, people in serious accident, because he cures them all through the mind. I had a friend of mine that had serious back problems from the time he was a kid. We solved it in one week. So. There's a lot that can be done with that, but secret of, 
and then if you would like to send me your contact information, I will send you a very specific list of books with their authors. Matter of fact, I'll even send you the books. It would be my pleasure. Thank you so much to all of you for listening and to, to Arnold for sharing wisdom on how to fight better, uh, how to hit first, how to survive. No, I don't fight periods. it. I don't want um, to fight and one of, I'll leave you with one thought, which is one of the best things Arnold ever said to me is, he said, you know, if, if I had no money at all, he said, I would still have abundance. He said, because I have a mindset of abundance and I feel that prosperity. And so one of the great things that I've learned from, from Arnold is, is that, you know, however much money we make, however successful we are, if you don't have that kind of in, internal life that, that gives you a sense of equanimity and control over your circumstances, it's very, very hard to have true prosperity. And so I think Arnold has been a, a, a great role model for me, and I, I, I'm, I'm glad that I, you've had a chance to hear some, some of his, his thoughts and insights. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.